We all have a story that if we start to tell it, we know we need a lot of time because we need to go and give all the requisite background information. We need to set up the context. We need to have time for the various tangents that illuminate the uh, emotional backdrop and the characters in the story. Uh, I know I have a story from my trip to the US back in 2009, uh, which ends with me getting questioned by the police that people close to me know they can go and probably cook a half decent pasta dinner in the time it will take me to tell the story. Some stories need a big scope. Uh, my guest today in her work on Paul's letter to the Romans uh, employs the analogy with Terence Malick's masterpiece, The Tree of Life, which in order to tell the story of a small Midwestern family in the 1950s and their grief and their pain has to go back to the very beginning, the creation of the cosmos, the first act of tenderness between two dinosaurs. All this is required in order to tell this story that seems quite minute. But that's important, says my guest, for understanding what Paul is on about. As she writes in the book, a prolonged and careful study of Romans means finding that salvation is more complex, more cosmic, more challenging than we have usually imagined. And if you haven't already guessed it, my guest today is Beverly Roberts Gaventa, and we are talking about her book, When in Romans, an invitation to linger with the gospel, according to Paul. An incredible, insightful, uh, accessible, short book on this very big text. Uh, Beverly Roberts Gaventa is a distinguished professor of New Testament at Baylor University and emerita professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. And she is the author and editor of a dozen, dozens of books, including Our Mother St. Paul or Apocalyptic Paul, Mary, and you should definitely check out her work. But before you do that, keep listening and please make welcome our most wonderful guest, Beverly Roberts Gaventa. And once again, I forget to introduce my name or the podcast, so here it is at the end. I'm Liam Miller. Welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. I am here with Beverly Roberts Gaventa, and we're going to be talking today about when in Romans. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to get to talk about uh, talk with you. So I guess one of the, before we get maybe specifically into the book, I guess, you know, you've written a number of books on Paul or edited uh, books on, on Paul and, and the New Testament and, and Mary and a whole bunch of topics. But, um, but I want to stay with Paul because I guess the question being maybe why Paul? Because, you know, depending on the circles you run in, that's not an uncontroversial uh, person to, to look right. at. <laughs> right. Well, my interest in Paul goes back to my own education as a, in an MDiv program, you know, almost half a century ago. Um, and I, I probably had the same attitude that Paul was not somebody I wanted to have anything to do with. Uh, but I took a course from J. Lewis Martin on Paul's letter to the Romans. And I came out of that with just a whole lot of questions about Paul and interest in Paul and, and the way the letters argue and where he's getting ideas and, and also just a, a very existential sense of being drawn to his understanding of the gospel. So all of those things have mixed together over the years to keep me interested in Paul. 
Mm, that's good. That's cool. Uh, so again, um, in your work on Paul, um, you edited a volume called Apocalyptic. Uh, right. Yeah, Paul, um, you've got Our Mother St. Paul, which has a lot of um, you know, these apocalyptic uh, themes come through again. And Now, I reckon for a lot of people who are listening to this, uh, when they hear that word, they're still thinking about the concept of maybe like a post-apocalyptic in sense of um, the setting of many films and books. Um, right. Um, but maybe it might be helpful just to kind of set the ground here. What does this, you know, what is this referring to, I guess, in, in your work or in, in Pauline studies? Sure. Well, it is confusing um, because we tend to use the word now for as an equivalent of disaster, you know. Mm. Uh, in, in theological terms, in biblical terms, apocalypse, as I'm sure you know and a lot of listeners will know, apocalypse it means revelation. Right. I mean, that's that's uh, where we get the Greek word. It means to uncover. Um, and so in in biblical studies, we use it in two ways that are, I think, related. One is for a set of texts that center around an apocalypse, a specific revelation to a seer, sometimes about what events are going to happen in the future uh, or ostensibly events that are going to happen in the future. Um, and we also use it, in, in that sense, it's fairly limited to things like Fourth Ezra and uh, the book of, of well, what we call in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, which is also the apocalypse. Um, there are elements in Paul's letters that are narrowly understood apocalyptic, as in, for example, Romans where he, Romans 11, where he says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. Well, that's an apocalyptic expression. Mm -hmm. I have this knowledge that I have received and I'm going to pass it on. Um, but apocalyptic is also used in another more, <clears throat> excuse me, broader sense for Paul's way of thinking about what God has done in Christ. And there it means, roughly speaking, at the most general level, that um, the, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ is God's um, intervention in the world as it is. That you can't simply read the Old Testament or read Jewish literature and predict what's going to happen in Jesus. That you can't reason forward that this is a real intrusion in the way the world is. Sometimes people use the word invasion, which makes other people nervous, uh, but it is a kind of invasive act um, by a, a powerful God uh, to rescue humanity. Thank you for that. I think that's really uh, helpful for to have that kind of uh, out there as we begin uh, talk about the book in earnest. And so... Uh, with when in Romans, you've, you know, you've not gone kind of, it's not a verse by verse uh, commentary. It's not working through right. even kind of linearly through the, the book. You've chosen kind of main themes uh, to, to explore, um, you know, salvation, Israel, ethics and worship and, and community. Um, I guess what led you to take this approach and was, were they the four that it was like, yep, from the beginning, these are the four I'm going to cover, or were there, uh, was there a wrestling of exactly what key uh, concepts and themes you were going to highlight? 
Um, to be honest, I'm not sure I remember. The book grows out of lectures I've given in a variety of venues, some churches, some seminary groups, some college uh, uh, settings. And it, it, it focused on some uh, ways in which I think Paul can be un- misunderstood. And in part, I was trying to get out of this notion that, uh, well, I was trying to get away from this notion that Romans is simply about doctrine. That is to say that it's narrowly uh, instructional about Christian doctrine. But I was also trying to loosen up to to broaden some of the ways in which people think about the letter. Um, For example, well, to go back to to not being uh, doctrinal, for example, one of the chapters, as you know, is about worship. Uh, People don't often associate Romans or Paul in general with worship. But I find that there's a lot of worship language in the letter, and I think it's just important to recover some of those elements that tend to be ignored when we focus on the same issues over and over again. In some ways, I was trying to uh, broaden the word I keep using is horizon, the way the way people think about the letter. They either tend to think of it, and we all do this in terms of an individual relationship with God, or um, sometimes in terms of God's relationship to Israel or Israel and the Gentiles. And my approach is to affirm all of those. I I don't think those should be negated, but to place the letter in a much larger, um, the word I keep using is cosmic or universalizing context, that it has to do with all humanity and really the whole of creation. Well, yes, I mean, that comes through in, in, in your first kind of chapter uh, when you're engaging um, Terence Malick's The Tree of Life. Right. Uh, now, like, the more maybe people have seen that film, the more explicit scriptural connection might be to make with the book of Job. Um, yes. So I guess how did you come to make uh, the connection with it to Paul's writing on salvation? And I guess how does it um, illuminate, as you say, that large cosmic context, the, the, the broad scope? in which Paul's language of of salvation occurs? Well, I think the honest thing to say about that is that I've been working on Romans so long that everything is about Romans. So that may, you know, it may may be that that that's the right way to go with this. And I wouldn't deny that there's a connection to Job. I rather doubt that Terence Malick or whoever wrote that script was thinking about about, uh, Romans. But... He could have been, because um, to me, the thing about that story is that it's such a tiny little story, right? I mean, it, it's it's a ter- it's a small story about one's family and its way of making it, it, how they make their way through the world through terrible tragedy and loss and and so forth, and yet as Malik tells it, if you know the film, he's constantly taking us out of that tiny story and showing us um, the whole of creation. You know, I mean, it, it, it flashes to some scenes that are very confusing when you first see it, um, in which the whole of the, of the created order uh, is reflected. And I think that it, it's not 
too much of a stretch to say that's also what Paul does, that we have this small question about our relationship to God, and that's that's not a question that Paul um, uh, that Paul rejects, but he's constantly placing, well, not just our relationship to God, but what happened to Jesus. You know, he's he's he places this account of God's doings in Jesus Christ in a context that includes um, not just Israel and not just Israel and Gentiles, but the whole of creation. Uh, so it's it's that that I find as a as as a way of helping us break out of a narrow reading of the letter. Mm. Yeah, I, I thought that was really good because yeah, Malik is determined to show that the only way you'll understand what happens to this family is you know if we think about the first act of mercy the world ever saw between two dinosaurs on a riverbank, <laughs> like right. you know, right. only yeah. when it's put in this place of there is a huge story and 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 that looks forward to and um, right as well yes that final scene on the on the beach mm. or the setting where families are together and not and it mm-hmm. I, I thought it was i thought it was gorgeous yeah uh, i i love uh, a quote from the book which is um a prolonged and careful study of romans means finding that salvation is more complex more cosmic and more challenging than we have usually imagined. And we've just been getting into this and this, this scope that we have discussed. Uh, but it also, this po- quote points to uh, the rectification of the cosmos, you know, that it's not just about humans and God, but about all of creation. Uh, and it also then, as you kind of develop later in the book, challenges us to take seriously the word all. Right. Now, if you were talking, as you have when you were developing this book, uh, talking with ministers or or people training to be ministers or people charged with Christian education in various settings, I guess how would you begin to encourage them to explore with their community the more, more, more of Paul's picture of salvation? Because, again, it's going to be different to maybe what people have traditionally opened the Book of Romans for. Um, You know, it's, it's a thing that you might have to go gently with you, do you have kind of advice or, or thoughts on yeah, how this, how you begin to speak of this picture? Well, as a biblical scholar, probably what I would do is say, look, let's read these texts together, you know, and you read that first chapter and you get, all, you get this repeated all language. Mm-hmm. And then you talk about Romans 5 which presses beyond simply our being in Abraham, we're also in Adam and in Christ. And when, once you say Adam, that means the whole of the human race. No one, there is no one who was not born as Paul sees it in Adam, that is to say in the created human. Um, and then I would look at, 11, at chapter 11, his treatment of Israel where again, you get this language of all, all of Israel, 1126. And I think it is challenging uh, to what most people have traditionally thought about Paul or about the New Testament. One of the things I say, I would say <clears throat> is this is not the whole of scripture. You know, there are different threads in scripture and they don't all say the same thing. Um, and sometimes they may not even be in agreement with one another. Um, 
And there, and I have to concede there are places in Paul that have judgment language, accountability language. Uh, and so one is always weighing which one of these explains the other one, you know. Uh, they're, not uni- they're not uniform. So which one is the one through which we read the letters? Um, and I think finally we have to say, as Paul does at the end of Romans 11, that this question of the universal extent of salvation is not ours to resolve, right? It's remarkable to me how often people worry about this question of the scope of salvation when Paul's letters and actually the New Testament as a whole doesn't worry about that question very much. You know, it, it has to do more with offering good news and how we live in light of that good news and how we share that good news because it's true, not by way of scaring people out of their wits, which is the kind of Christianity a lot of us grew up with. Um, and and so I would go into it with the texts themselves. I'm sorry, I hit my keyboard. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I would go into it with the texts themselves and, you know, and, and suggest that maybe Paul's way of thinking is somewhat uh, challenging to ours. And then we have to ask why that is. Uh, I mean, one of the things that's problematic for us is that we want to be sure everybody thinks and behaves the way we think they should. Um, And we tend to underestimate the radical grace that we need as much as anyone else. Mm -hmm. A kind of desire on our part to want to weigh people or to want God to weigh people. This person is better than that person. But in Paul, at least in Romans, there's a lot of leveling of the playing ground. Mm -hmm. there's, There's not this sense that well, you're almost okay, you know, and, and this person is really, really bad. That Those are gradations that don't turn up, mm. and yeah. it's, it's pretty distressing to us. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, yeah, that really, um, yeah, disturbs a lot of neat categorization that we like to uh, to do, um, uh, yes, and, uh, and I thought you, you touched on it there in that response too, what's, what's so, you, you work it out in the book as well, like, there's often that question of, well, if, if we take that all seriously, why do we do any of this? And as you say, well, Paul, it was good news. And Paul thought it changed lives. And right. it changed right. his. It changed yeah. his. It changed, you know, it, it opened up a world. It's a, a, a new world in Christ. So it's, it's um, I, I, I always find that question very interesting. Mm, yes. Uh, so moving to your the next chapter, which is you know your chapter on Israel, consider Abraham. Uh, you write that for Paul in Romans, Israel belongs to God as God's creation. It is always and only God's creation, and Israel will remain God's creation even in the eschaton. Now, obviously, this is uh, an important topic to tackle, not only because it's it's in Romans, um, but given the you know the history of Christian Jewish relations and also the the present. Uh, relationship um, where we see, I was reading an article the other day, which was talking about the, the booming rise of um, tourism, the tourism industry taking US evangelical Christians to Israel um, amidst some rather concerning political, right. religious rhetoric. Uh, so I guess, what was it like to uh, approach this chapter 
kind of in the current climate given, or what is it like to live in the current climate given you're someone who is always thinking about Romans? Uh, and I guess how might you hope this, this too maybe reshapes some conversations happening in, in churches all over the place? Well, you know, to begin with, I would want to, to make clear that when we talk about Romans 9 through 11 or Romans 4, places where Paul is talking about Israel, he is not talking about a state of Israel. Uh, and he is, you know, to be very fair and explicit about it, he's talking about a situation in his own time. So as Christians read it and use it, and I think we can, we have to be very careful what we extrapolate. Uh, Paul's comments, for example, when he is critical of Israel, those are not comments that can be projected onto the future. In fact, I think they're, they're questions that are comments that are very much limited to his own uh, time, his own, um, his own con confusion uh, and deep concern about the fact that most of Israel, he keeps saying Israel, what he means is most of Israel does not recognize Jesus as the Messiah of, of God. Um, having said that, <clears throat> this, this notion that I keep pressing that Israel belongs to God as God's creation uh, means that, and by that I mean what other people would call ethnic Israel. But I think when Paul talks about it, he's talking about God's action, God's people that God has created. And there's a sense in which one one thread in 9 through 11 is God created this people and God will see to it. God made promises to this people and those promises are not promises that are going to expire. You know, those are promises that have no expiration date. Um, and also that those promises um, will come to fulfillment in God's good time you know, on God's, uh, on God's way of thinking about it. And so, you know, one of the things that he is adamant about there is a kind of Gentile arrogance. You know, there's a kind of Christian arrogance that assumes that we know what God is doing. Um, and I think had that thread in Romans 9 through 11 been taken more seriously for the last couple of millennia, the church wouldn't have gotten in, gotten itself into the kind of difficulty that it has uh, with thinking about Jews and Judaism. Oh, thank you for that. And it is, yeah, a very important chapter and, and really well worked through. Uh, now, as I keep reading the book, I come to a rather alarming uh, notion that, that Paul didn't have an ethic. Uh, oh. Paul didn't have an ethic. Uh, and so if that's the case, then, then what does Paul have? Uh, not for an ethic. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a very good question. I probably did say that, didn't I? Paul doesn't have <laughs> ethic. <clears throat> By which I don't mean Paul is not ethical or that Paul doesn't have ethical instructions. But I, as you can tell, I'm not happy with some of the tidy categories that we use. So, you know, Romans 1 through 11 is all about theology and then, or Romans 1 through 8 is about theology Romans 9 through 11 is about Israel and Romans uh, 12 through 16 or 12 through 15, the beginning of 15, are about ethics. Well, 
those are nice handles, but they don't work very well because they presuppose, I think, a kind of division between theology and life. You know, we, we have these convictions here and then we figure out what to do based on those. And I think for Paul, it's all much more um, blended than that. It's much more integrated than that. So that you have everything he says presupposes, uh, everything he says about what we call theology presupposes an ethical outcome. And everything he says about ethics is deeply theological. Um, if I were to say, you know, where is Paul's ethic? Where is the closest we get in Romans to Paul's ethic? Then it would, of course, be Romans 12, 1 and 2. You know, that, that we are to offer up our persons, he says, our bodies, um, as, as, as sacrifice. That is to say, the whole person. You know, everything that we are and have uh, is God's, period, full stop. And if that is the case, then, you know, this is, again, a little scary because when people want to have an ethic, they want to have sort of a, I'm being facetious because this is probably, an, uh, th this is a great exaggeration, but a lot of us want to have a kind of list of things we must do and things we shouldn't do and Paul's ethic would be more like the deeply offensive claim that we don't belong to ourselves. That's, that's scary to people. So it's scary to me. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yes. Um, as you say, I think one of the subtitles is, you know, throw your body in the offering plate. Um, right. You know, right. It's, a, it's yeah, a, a huge demand that is placed on us, not just simply, um, you know, right. navigating a list that we can tick. Right. Mm. Uh, and it's not, you know, being a Christian is not about being in worship on Sunday and three things you might do otherwise, but the whole of life. And that's, that's terrifying. Mm. Yeah. We have it, a yeah. It's not unlike uh, Jesus's response to the question, you know, uh, uh, should I pay tribute to Caesar or not? And his response is, uh, give Caesar what is his and give God what belongs to God. Well, the trick to that is, what belongs to God, right? Everything, right? So there's there's a there's a similar logic going on here. Mm. And and that that um, we've written about the ethic. You know, it has a nice kind of build to the you know the goal is to forge worship and ethics into one. Amen. And I think that was a really uh, oh, that. I like that line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then you come to your chapter. Uh, welcome one another. Uh, in which you do some important work on uh, who Paul means as those called to belong to Jesus Christ. Uh, again, this is about maybe disrupting some of the categories that, that we like to keep so neat in that uh, who we mean by Christians or the Christians right. is not always as simple or as easily uh, defined as, as we might have expected. Do you just want to give us a little bit of an insight into your, your thinking here? Uh, right. Well, again, it's it's consistent, I think, with what I've been saying all along when he talks in chapter 14 about what appears to be a conflict over how we're supposed to eat, you know, which is, uh, at least in the first century, for anybody who was uh, raised as a Jew, this is a crucial issue. Uh, this is not a, a small matter. 
and uh, people, uh, there seem to be disagreements about whether uh, food laws that were that obtained under Israel in whether Jewish food laws still uh, hold or not. With some people apparently saying yes, they do, and others arguing that they don't, and the two quarreling. Uh, maybe not quarreling in the abstract over practice, but what happens when you come together at table? What food goes on the table? Uh, if if um, there are people in the community who who are deeply committed to the continuity of food laws, and we have a potluck supper, and I show up with shellfish, you know, or pork. I am really offending my neighbor. So there's, a, there's apparently judgment going on in that. And what Paul says is, first of all, you have no business judging one another. That's God's problem, not yours. And the other is welcome the other. You know, welcome this person who is not like you, who does not think like you, who does not practice like you. And his argument is Christ welcomed you. You know, you also were other uh, and you were welcomed, uh, and therefore you have no you have no prerogative about turning somebody away. I think it's interesting, also in the sense of you know a lot of the debates currently on like religious freedoms uh, or on like you know what often gets termed as you know political correctness, and that there's this um, you know it's like well I'm not offended by something, so therefore why should I right it or I don't need um, a prayer room in my office so therefore why should why should others, someone else yeah right. but Paul's kind of like well no you know the yeah be by welcoming others means you have to be attentive to what it is that that is offensive to others or is um, right necessarily others even if it might not be for you problematic for you yeah mm. uh so kind of almost like in some ways, going to the end and to the beginning. So the book begins with the, the greetings in, in Romans 16 and, and looks specifically within that at, at the figure of Phoebe. Uh, so I guess I want to ask you a question, borrowing a chapter title from, from another of your works, uh, you know, with the figure of Phoebe being so important, are you saying that Pauline theology is not just a guy thing? <laughs> oh, yes, indeed, I would say that. Um, yeah, one of the things I I argue there, and I, I I I'd probably go a step or two further than some people would, but uh, Paul greets Phoebe, or, or sorry, Paul asks that they receive Phoebe, and he comments on uh, the fact that she is a deacon, that she has been a patron uh, of many, including himself. So it seems quite clear. And I think most people, most scholars would agree with this, that Phoebe is the one who is charged with taking the letter to Rome. And my argument after that is that he would not have sent someone with the letter if he hadn't discussed the letter with her. Given what we know about the way writing and what we would call publication happened, it's very likely that she and others sat with him, listened to parts of this letter as he was thinking it through, drafting it, and then um, that he talked to her about what he wanted to convey so that um, when she takes the letter, 
she is prepared to talk about it. Now, I think, and again, a, a number of New Testament scholars would agree that she is the one who reads the letter in these small gatherings of Christians in Rome. Some people would argue against that, but I think by and large, that's a fairly safe assumption. No one else is named. She's the one who has the leadership uh, in another congregation. She seems the logical person. And if so, then she is necessarily interpreting the letter. Because when you read something aloud, whether you mean to or not, you do interpret it. And she's the one who's presumably prepared to talk about it. This, this means that um, you know, she has from the beginning an invested in, a vested interest in this letter. We can see in the rest of the greetings at Rome, in, the, in Romans 16, that there were a number of women who, were, who are greeted and who are presumably in some kind of leadership roles. That's a, a different question, but I can come back to that if you want to. And I think it makes eminently good sense to say then that Pauline theology, that, that Paul is not just thinking about men when he thinks about the gospel and its implications. And even if he were, it's not being heard by just men. And it's being interpreted by women from the beginning. Um, to me, that's a very energizing uh, set of, of reflections. Yeah. What I want to see now is a bunch of paintings of Paul writing that aren't him just like doing this on his own, but uh, right. you know, a bunch of people in the room, like a, a TV writer's room sitting around a table. Uh, figuring what a out great idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I think that's a really important uh, thing. And I, I like what you said there about like, you know, there's no way to read something that doesn't emphasize one thing or, or connect things in, in a particular right. way. So that's right. Well, I don't know what the equivalent would be in Australia, but here, you know, I, the illustration that I sometimes use has to do with news networks. Mm. The very same, the very same headline can be read in two very uh, different, even conflicting ways, mm. depending on the attitude of the, um, the reader. Yeah, totally. And, and you, you know, you imagine that only having, if you hear that letter through in its entirety, by the time you get to the end, you're going to have some questions or you're going to need, wait, can we go back to that part and can you clarify right. that? Or, you right. know, and, and the person reading would have to yeah, play a role, uh, a, a significant role in, in that, in shaping that. So, yeah. Uh, now, um, could, early, I, could I add one okay. thing to that? Yeah. Especially when we bear in mind, and people t tend to forget, that Paul has never been to Rome. They have never seen him. They may have heard things about him, not necessarily good things, mm. uh, but they don't know him. So he has no voice in their heads. Mm. They have no experience with him. So the person who will represent this letter to them in, in, in person is Phoebe. Mm. And becomes then very, you know, Paul would have been, you know, you think very um, deliberate about who he would have chosen given that he he's obviously right. careful in this letter, very determined that he comes across... And his, and his right. theology comes across well. Right, exactly. Mm, that's really cool. Thank you for that. Sure. Uh, now, earlier this year, uh, you spoke at the, the Karl Barth Conference at Princeton. Um, and I know from that video, uh, it's mentioned that you, you've co-taught classes uh, on Barth and, and his work on Romans. I guess, uh, what, was it, is it, what is it like writing about Romans some, some hundred, almost hundred years after Jerome Brief? <laughs> 
Well, I, I, I don't fancy myself in competition with Karl Barth uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And there are ways in which that commentary, I mean, that commentary does have major problems. However, uh, it, it, I would bet that it will be read in a hundred, another hundred years and probably not many of the things that we're writing now, myself included, will be read then. Um, and part of it is that Bart is so determined to listen to, you know, the Zaka, the content, the real content of the letter. Now, as he does that, I think he does, I think he has engaged with a lot of traditional exegetical questions, but he does not, uh, he does not put those on the surface. So it can be a very confusing um, commentary to read. But speaking for myself, in many cases, when I have gone back and read what he wrote about a certain passage and then worked at the text for a while and then gone back to Bart, I, I'll see, oh, I see how you got, I, I see how you got to this. And yes, actually, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. He may not have, have said everything, and there are ways in which he makes huge mistakes, but I, I think that uh, he has taken the kind of risk that few of us were, are willing to take. Mm. Well, thank you for that. That's, that's nice. So uh, speaking of commentaries, like larger commentaries, I, uh, it's you know, well known you're working on uh, a Romans commentary. Um, how did you know, pulling this book together when in Romans, how did, did that have impact, influence, uh, problematize anything you were kind of thinking about as you've been working on this, this larger commentary? Uh, no, I think actually that book, that little book is a help. I mean, mm. it's certainly not, as you know, it's not a commentary. It reflects where my thinking is and the responses I've had to it have encouraged me Mm -hmm. uh, as I as I continue to work on the commentary, and also some of the responses having have helped me to know where I need to uh, make sure that I'm making my argument clear, mm -hmm. and where I may need to modify it uh, in in some respects. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, well, I, I, I put out a call on Twitter yesterday that I was going to be interviewing you, and if anyone had questions, they could let me know. Um, and my New Testament, my, from my MD of my New Testament lecturer, just simply said that he's just not going to teach Romans until he can assign your commentary. Um, <laughs> so he's, he's waiting with bated breath. So uh, hopefully that serves as an encouragement and not a uh, not not foreboding. Um, yes, because things can be heard in either you know yeah. one of two ways. So. Um, so as, as we close out, uh, I have a kind of uh, game that I play um, here, which is um, pairings. Uh, so we need to, um, like you would in a restaurant, we need to pair your book uh, with a few things. Uh, so we need to pair your book with a meal, something okay. to eat alongside when in Romans, uh, uh, a song or a piece of music, uh, and then another book. So if you've if you've read when in Romans and you close it and you're like hmm what next uh, there so a meal a piece of music another book and and we'll, we'll pair it away. So a, a meal first. Yeah. That's, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, since we're in Rome, we would have to have pasta. Yeah. <laughs> 
with some excellent red wine. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, I'll yeah. start with that. That's good. We're off to a good and start. And then a piece of music, right? Uh, well, you know what I'm going to say because you've read the book. I'm going to say Bruce Springsteen and, and this train, you know, where he explodes that sense that the train is only for the good. Mm. The train is for everybody. And then another book. Well, hmm. Um, I want to mention all of my friends' books. Yeah. <laughs> um, but maybe... Yeah, that 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 there be danger. Uh, <laughs> uh, rather than specifically a book on Paul, I'm going to mention Phil Ziegler's uh, book, Militant Grace, mm. because um, because there's so many excellent books on Paul, and, and whichever you know, if I mention one, I'm in trouble with someone else. <laughs> uh, but Phil Ziegler is working on. A number of these um, is, is working on apocalyptic mm. and specifically Pauline apocalyptic from a theological perspective. Uh, he is himself a systematician. Mm. And I, I find his work immensely helpful for putting me in touch with strands in especially Protestant, but not only Protestant thought that, had, that, that illumine mm. things I'm trying to see, say in the text. Mm. Yeah, that's great. That's good. We've got people got some people got some good recommendations there. Uh, well, uh, Beverly Gaventa, thank you so much for joining us today. The book is You're most welcome. The book is When in Romans: An Invitation to Linger with the Gospel According to Paul. I encourage everyone to check it out, and uh, it's a really accessible and exciting read. It's good for. Uh, you know, any level of, of Christian audience and you could use it in Bible studies or book clubs or things like that. Um, so go ahead and pick it up and, and leave reviews. Is there anything else you want to plug, any way people can uh, connect with you or, or, or anything you want to make mention of at this point? I think that's all, Liam. Thank you very much. It's a oh, good conversation. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. Really. Take care. Thank you.